Morning, Pete. Harry. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. Part one of my pilot coverage for Twin Peaks. If you're listening to this first, just know there's an introductory uh, chapter, a few minutes long, that lays out the whole format for the series going forward and welcomes new viewers in particular to the Twin Peaks uh, podcast. For everybody listening, uh, you're hearing this at different times. For those listening, uh, second tier patrons, you're hearing this on the 30th anniversary of the events in this episode. It takes place on February 24th, 1989. You're hearing it on February 24th, 2019. So I thought that would be a good time to start this podcast. If you're listening to this in the first tier, you're hearing it with a six-month delay. You're hearing it on the 11th anniversary of my very first post on Twin Peaks. So a little bit of more humble anniversary than uh, the pilot's events, but still something that I like to celebrate anyways. The first time that I wrote about Twin Peaks on my site in 2008. Uh, So you're hearing this on August 9th, 2019, 11 years later. Now for the big questions. First of all, what is Twin Peaks? It's an intricate community defined both by its population and its location. Obviously, the first hook is that it's a quiet, remote area, but the town also seems very rude in a particular time and place, even with 50s motifs like the diner and Letterman jacket sporting jocks and uh, part of a larger society. You know, that sign with the big population adds to that impression. People go about the business of their everyday lives in a professional demeanor. The hospital, the lumber mill, the high school, to a certain degree, uh, save the offbeat receptionist and weepy deputy. Even the sheriff's station seems staffed by ordinary people that you could find anywhere in late 80s America. There's intrigue between the ensemble, but aside from a few eccentrics, including perhaps the main character himself, uh, there's nothing like it's it's the, the characters themselves don't seem that idiosyncratic at this point. Of course, the two characters who Cooper encounters that do seem pretty eccentric are uh, the, the Dr. Jacoby, the weird shrink with the hula tie, and also someone I haven't mentioned yet, the log lady, the woman holding a log, who, of course, Sheriff Truman just says, uh, yeah, we, we call her the log lady, pretty self-explanatory. She's flipping the lights at the town meeting, trying to get people's attention. So just an odd civic figure, and, uh, you know, we see a sort of a background figure here. Because Twin Peaks was sold as a surrealist venture with David Lynch bringing his unique vision to the TV landscape, I think it's worth highlighting that more mundane aspect of the pilot uh, from coming to it from that perspective. On the other hand, of course, the placid mundane surface usually conceals much more in Lynch's work, and that that idea, that that contradiction between the calm and the, the storm below or whatever, 
that's really what most critics at least noted when the, sh- the show first aired. The strange intonations, the glacial pacing, the moody exterior shots that distinguish this atmospheric world. Many casual viewers became attached to Twin Peaks not so much as a bold slice of the cinematic avant-garde, but as a regular weekly soap, however quirky the packaging. They had characters they cared about, they had plots they were invested in, and even though most people watching it were deeply aware of the show's weird qualities right from the get-go, they were also drawn to that small-town milieu. There's something comforting about it as well as unsettling. It's really doing both at once. I think the recent show that probably duplicated the the Twin Peaks effect to the greatest extent was the first season of True Detective, where viewers were avidly following a mystery. They were also admiring the sharply drawn characters, but also glorying in a very particular locality as part of the texture. The next big question is, who is Agent Cooper? Cooper's our hero so far to be sure, but he's presented quite unconventionally. Sheriff Truman is much more the everyman. He's with us from the pilot's earliest moments. He serves as a sure, steady hand, guiding the descent into the darkness of February 24th, 1989 in Twin Peaks, Washington. Granted, he's as bewildered as we are by the complexity of the case, which is why Cooper needs to enter the narrative. Our relationship to Cooper is complicated by the lateness of his arrival and also his elevated brilliance and eccentric demeanor. Is this somebody we relate to or somebody we kind of marvel at from afar? These very qualities make him a rich, fascinating character to watch, and one we quickly become attached to. I remember watching the pilot for the first time and feeling a sense of relief when Cooper first appeared. He really offsets the intensity of the early scenes and brings a jolt of humor and direction to the scenario. We may not identify him as we're encouraged to do with Truman, or identify with him as we're encouraged to do with Truman, but I think we do admire and are deeply entertained by him. And he's not so far above us in some ways because you know, much of this town is new to him as well. So at times, he and Truman sort of switch places, which one is being the audience surrogate and, you know, which one is uh, being the, the, the person to introduce us, like, as as the familiar person and we're the, the kind of the stranger to this environment. Finally, the big question, who is Laura Palmer? We've touched on this a lot through her subplots and through the central mystery question, but the crisis of the pilot is essentially the gap between Laura's body and her soul. The teenage girl we see washed up on shore looks surprisingly peaceful despite her violent death, which is a classic Lynchian paradox. This disparity is compounded by other uh, complementary ones, like the contradiction between her fresh memory and her immediate absence, or the difference between Laura's public reputation and secret life, drawn like the episode itself across a day and night experience. The series is encouraging questions and reflections, not just about a particular murder, but about who people really are after all, about how someone who is just here can be gone, and about how the physical body can be left behind, yet something else altogether seems to be haunting our lives in its name. How did this normal person become otherworldly? What was the path from here to there? Although on one level, it's a story about someone who's quote-unquote fallen, subliminally, it's kind of being set up as a story about someone who's risen. Laura is really the subject of the pilot, as I put it in my video series, Journey Through Twin Peaks, the essential structure of the premise positions Cooper as the active presence, leading the narrative forward, the town is the terrain across which he travels and encounters various phenomena, and Laura is the embodiment of mystery that draws him forward, giving him something to pursue in the first place. Many mystery shows at the time followed the murder-she-wrote, father-dowling mystery format, in which each episode presented a standalone case to be resolved before the credits rolled. 
As Lynch made clear, uh, he despised this sense of closure and wanted to go for something else. It caused a bit of a buzz at the time that Twin Peaks would not wrap up this quote-unquote initial mystery, this MacGuffin hook, at the end of the first episode. On the other hand, how could it? Cooper is only in town because of this particular case, so unless Twin Peaks was a TV movie, it could not resolve in one episode, and unless it was a miniseries, which was unclear at the time, given its short season and lack of a firm commitment on ABC's part, it could not resolve in one season, right? Right? Well, of course, that's the big question going forward, and it was at the time for many eager but also frustrated viewers, as well as for us now. The feel of the pilot is graceful and meditative, and unusually slow for TV, but always intensely in the moment. It's calm, but it's also tight. Narratively, this is a soap opera as well as a police procedural, although more the latter given the centrality of the murder case. Still, it's a good way into the episode before we're really focused on the investigation rather than the town's shock and grief. And that helps define the feel of this episode. That makes it feel more immersive, less sort of propulsive, even as we're steadily moving forward. For the look of this episode, I would recommend listening to Ron Garcia's ASC podcast interview. That's the American Society of Cinematographers, and he was the director of photography for this episode, as well as eventually for the film. And he talks about both in this episode. And uh, so you might want to wait till you've seen the whole series, but bookmark it. Uh, He goes really in-depth about the techniques that he used to get this particular look. There's a very brownish, orange, reddish tinge to everything we see, and it's just got a palpable texture to it, a really wet and wintry atmosphere. Uh, And there's a real openness, rootedness, and realism to its use of actual locations. You know, this feels anchored in a real place, you know, a real time and place, Uh, that it captures. And uh, this is very much early Lynch in style. Uh, It's not loose filmmaking at all. This is like an anchored camera, subtle adjustments and compositions, mostly naturalistic performances. There's a stillness to what we see, even though there's a nice use of movement within the frame. And of course, Laura Palmer is the most still feature of all. Uh, In the right frame of mind, you can really see this as a movie, not just a TV pilot, an event whose purpose is to cultivate a place and time rather than propel a narrative forward. So that's kind of the feel that I think a lot of critics were responding to, this this startling idea of being made to, like, taste and smell uh, something, you know, just that was so evocative, and they weren't used to seeing that in a TV show. The context for the pilot goes back four years before it was released. David Lynch and Mark Frost were introduced by their mutual agent, Tony Krantz, around 1986. David Lynch had just finished Blue Velvet, which was an immensely acclaimed film. Oftentimes, people will call it the best film of the 1980s period. And uh, that was being released that year. It was his comeback from Dune, which was a big-budget sci-fi film that had flopped horribly. Uh, But two years later, he was back with something that would really established his reputation uh, more so than it already had been. His backstory is that he was a Philadelphia art student in the late 60s, obviously a very experimental countercultural time, although he was always an interesting mix of kind of straight-edge presentation and very, very offbeat in his sensibilities. And people were always charmed by him. One person, uh, it's often attributed to Mel Brooks, but I think it was actually Stuart Kornfeld, I think was his name. He called him Jimmy Stewart from Mars, or also another variation on that is Jimmy Stewart on acid. 
And while he was in Philadelphia, Lynch became interested in making uh, short experimental films. What's interesting is he didn't come to this through being a cinephile. He wasn't going to all of these art films and Hollywood movies and thinking, I want to make a, a movie up there. He was looking at his own paintings and seeing things in them move and wanting to make a painting move. So it's almost like in his mind he invented you know, cinema anew 70 years after it was born. And in Philadelphia, after he'd made several films, he was contacted by the AFI. Uh, well, I think he entered a... Uh, a request for a grant from them and they really liked his work and they brought him out to Los Angeles, a big change of pace from a very grungy, impoverished Philadelphia in the late sixties to sunny LA in the early seventies. And that had a big impact on him. However, his first film that he made out there starting as an AFI project eventually became a feature film was Eraserhead. And that is very much influenced by his time in Philadelphia very avant-garde film. If you haven't seen that, definitely worth seeing. I wouldn't take it as too much of an indication what you're going to see in Twin Peaks. It's more of sort of the outer edge of what he does, but it really established him as a, as a filmmaker to watch. And then he was uh, assigned to do The Elephant Man. He was contacted by the screenwriters. He liked their script. He actually contributed some to it himself on future drafts. And then Mel Brooks, who was producing the project, uh, ag agreed to have him directed, even though he was this young director who had only directed this very strange film. That movie did really well. It got him an Oscar nomination at 34 years old. He's off to this great start. We can see him doing a route that a lot of directors seem to do now, which is they create their own personal small-budget project, and then they're sort of assigned films by... Uh, you know, Hollywood producers. And that almost happened to Lynch in a in a very similar way to what happens to many of these young directors now. George Lucas reached out and wanted him to direct Return of the Jedi. And if you can imagine a David Lynch Return of the Jedi, I mean, that's something to behold. So he said no. He thought this is more of a Lucas project. I need to have something where I can have my own voice. Uh, but he was still interested in doing a big-budget sci-fi spectacle-type project. So... Dino De Laurentiis contacted him, the famous Italian producer, and invited him to make the adaptation of Dune, the uh, Frank Herbert novel that has really, you know, became legendary in the 60s and has been tackled several times by different filmmakers. And Lynch's version of this went way over budget. He had a lot of trouble in the cutting. He let the producers have a lot of say and decisions he made, and he regretted it afterwards. The film really did not make back its budget. It was not well-received at all by critics and perplexed many audiences. It does have a following today, but, uh, you know, the, the, the verdict on it tends to be negative overall. And Lynch was just heartbroken by this. He takes this sort of creative failure very personally, and he vowed at that point never to give up Final Cut again. And from that point on, he wanted to have the final say on what was in his movies. So his next project was Blue Velvet. He got funding for that off the ground pretty quickly after Dune. It starred Kyle MacLachlan, who he had discovered to play Apollo Atreides in Dune. And in Blue Velvet... Uh, he came up with the story of a small town with a seemingly pleasant surface and all this dark stuff going on underneath. And that, of course, would play very much into Twin Peaks. Now, that's Lynch's story. Uh, forgive me for going over it again for many of you who know it, but it is a kind of a, a great history that he brings to this project. Mark Frost is, is and was lesser known. Uh, Frost was a writer on Hill Street Blues coming off of two seasons of that show 
1986, which is one of the acclaimed cop shows of the 80s, maybe the most acclaimed show. Very realistic in texture, especially for that time. And, you know, a master of ongoing stories where you would have a character, something would happen, but it would continue into the next episode and the next. They'd usually only be three or four episode arcs, um, but they, they were very much engaged with that kind of storytelling. Whereas a lot of cop shows were more just the procedural one in, one out, you know, finish with the mystery on to the next one. So that was kind of where he was coming from. His background was in Minneapolis, where his father was an actor and a beloved teacher. And a lot of the people in Twin Peaks, involved with Twin Peaks, come from that kind of fold, from the Frost fold. And a lot of other ones come from Lynch, often people that he worked with on Eraserhead for the first time. And so you have those two worlds kind of combining here in a way. At this time, Frost was working on The Believers, which came out in 1987. He wrote that screenplay by himself. It's based on a uh, horror story, and it's directed by John Schlesinger. It's a film about uh, voodoo, basically. It's this this secret society kind of cult in uh, the in New York, I think, that's practicing voodoo and sacrificing their children, all this sort of eerie stuff going on. So he was very immersed in that world of horror because he was also... Uh, around this time, writing Scared Stiff with Daniel F. Backner, who is the executive producer of Blood Simple but has no other writing or producing credits, and Richard Friedman, a director who has a lot of credits, and they're almost all horror films. So he was really kind of rooting himself in that genre in a way after working in the cop series. And I think even in this first episode, you can almost see elements of that kind of fusing together in the in the texture of Twin Peaks. So their mutual agent introduced them, and the, the idea was that they were going to be working on a project called The Goddess, or just Goddess, I think. It was based on a best-selling novel or book about uh, Marilyn Monroe, theorizing about her death, kind of implicating the Kennedys. And they were both drawn to this, I think, for somewhat different reasons. Frost is big into histor- historical context, society, social relations, like just this sort of external dynamics of of you know human interaction that's what captivates him so this had the kennedys it had this intrigue it had the hollywood system it had all of these cool like you know things that he could kind of filter through his through his lens whereas lynch was much more interested in the figure of marilyn this kind of romantic dreamy figure who was in despair despite her outer beauty and actually lynch has a quote about this which is really great about how uh, their project kind of got away from them, or at least from him, and he wasn't thrilled with where it went. I think it tells us a lot about the differing sensibilities of Lynch and Frost. He said, It got into the realm of biopic and the Kennedys thing, and away from the movie actress that was falling. I got cold on it. At any rate, they never got to produce the movie, because when they finished the script, they turned it into Warner Brothers, and Frost found out that Ethel Kennedy was on the board of Warner Brothers, and the movie talks openly about Robert Kennedy's affair with Marilyn Monroe may even implicate her, him in her death. So that was going to be a pass from them. He, he pretty much called that. So they worked on some other projects. The second one, I think, was One Saliva Bubble, which is a goofy comedy about a saliva bubble that pops out of a guard's mouth in a top-secret military installation and lands inside a piece of machinery, which then emits a signal to a satellite in outer space. And that satellite sends a ray of electricity down to Earth, which electrifies an airport in the Midwest, and it causes everyone inside to exchange their consciousness with one another. So a group of Texans are in 
inhabited by Chinese acrobats. A mobster switches places with a mild-mannered, henpecked husband, and a brilliant scientist exchanges bodies with an insane rich man, and so forth. Martin Short was going to star in it. It actually, believe it or not, with the craziness of the, the premise, was actually greenlit, and Dino De Laurentiis was going to produce it, but his company went bankrupt right before it was going to get produced. So Lynch stormed out of the offices and actually at that time took Frank Silva with him. Frank Silva was a set dresser who worked with De Laurentiis, and Silva, of course, would come to play a prominent part in Twin Peaks, where he would start off as a set dresser and become much more. The third project Lynch and Frost worked on was The Lumerians, a TV miniseries. I don't think it was a full show, although the producers might have wanted it to be. That may have been a point of contention. It's about a lost Atlantis-type civilization and the FBI agents who hunt down these creatures as they inhabit people in present-day society. There's a lot of paranormal lore surrounding this, and Frost has always had a keen interest in the occult and paranormal and the sort of pulpy world of UFOs and ghosts. Uh, not, not ghosts so much, more like sort of historical uh, mythos, you know, Roswell, that type of thing. And also theosophy, which was a spiritual movement in late 19th century Europe, uh, more or less founded, I think, by Madame Blavatsky. She was certainly a leading figure. And they would kind of incorporate uh, systems of thought and ideas from Eastern religions and, and incorporate them into a more Western context. So that was a big influence on him as well. Twin Peaks came about when somebody suggested to Lynch and Frost that they write something like a Peyton Place meets Blue Velvet. You know, this was the time of the nighttime soap, Dallas and Dynasty, um, on at prime time, and they were hugely popular shows. So this was a genre that they figured maybe they could slot these guys in after their first few projects just hadn't worked out. Uh, and Lynch still hadn't directed anything since Blue Velvet either, so they were just sort of sitting around. He had never worked in TV before. Frost obviously was somewhat experienced in TV, certainly went through the boot camp of, of being a story editor on Hill Street Blues for several years. So he he knew how that sausage was made, pretty much. They went back and they watched Peyton Place. I think they watched the film, not the series, the original 1950s film. And that's a uh, story. It was a novel, then a movie, then a, then a uh, kind of a soap opera about a small New England town and all of the melodrama happening there between the characters, again, beneath the surface. So sort of a less crazy blue velvet. And they did not like it, actually. They, they didn't think the show worked, but I think that the template sort of had an impact on them, and this was the sort of show that they would tell with, with some big twists in it. They came up with the idea of Twin Peaks, apparently at Dupar's, which is a restaurant, a diner, I believe, in the L.A. area, uh, in Studio City. I'd love to make a pilgrimage there someday the next time I'm in L.A. Go out there and look at the place where Twin Peaks was born in this sort of, you know, desert valley uh, area so far from the world that it depicts on screen. Lynch and Frost disagree about the origin of the idea, or at least they place different emphasis on different parts of the creative process. To Frost, the town came first. The whole geography of it, they laid out its ecosystem, who the people were, what their relationships were. This idea of an intricate society, a small town where all this drama was going on, and the murder mystery would develop as a great introduction to the characters and the schemes unfolding beneath the surface. So he saw it as a way into this world, and the point was the world. But to Lynch, the dead girl came first, the mysterious person or object that triggered all of the other associations and emotional resonance. 
Again, we have the goddess scenario. Is this an individual icon uh, that has a convenient centerpiece for a sprawling social portrait about power? Or is the worldly intrigue a backdrop for the portrait of a beautiful, troubled human soul? Ironically, though, even if it's Lynch who was interested in the Laura angle as its own thing, it's probably Frost who suggested the murdered young woman as a plot device. This was based on two inspirations, the murder of Hazel Drew in upstate New York around the turn of the century. Uh, that's something that's been covered a great deal by Mark Givens and David Bushman, two writers who have been uh, are huge Twin Peaks fans, and they've been investigating this original case and coming to their own conclusions. And also, influent, this was influenced by the death of one of Frost's peers when he was a young, uh, I think a child or early adolescent growing up. Uh, one of his friend's uh, sister died. And I'm not sure how she died, but the anecdote is talked about on a Dear Meadow radio interview, which I'll link in the show notes, uh, conducted by Mark Givens, who is, you know, the one that I just said was reporting on the Hazel Drew story. Anyways, he introduced, he interviews Frost and Frost talks about how he saw the brother grieving, the whole town shocked by this sudden unexpected death. And it's so clear to see that in this episode as well. So Lynch and Frost pitched this idea to ABC. Lynch emphasized more the atmosphere than the narrative, uh, talking about trees blowing in the wind. And according to Frost, all of the executives just kind of leaned forward in their chairs and they wouldn't tell them anything more about it unless they commissioned it. But right around this time, the writer's strike happened in Hollywood. It lasted from March to August of 1988, and this was the longest writer's strike in history. So in the strike, they were fighting for residuals for hour-long shows, expanded creative rights for... Uh, to choose actors and directors, and also producers on their end wanted to cut costs elsewhere to make up for this. So the screen, the 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 Writers uh, Guild filed an antitrust suit accusing 18 studios and networks of mounting an illegal boycott. So there was a lot of drama going on at this time with Lynch and Frost, I believe both members of the Guild, uh, trying not to participate in any projects so that they would not, you know, violate that solidarity. Um and eventually it was settled. It seems like the studios kind of got more out of it than uh, than the writers, although the writers were able to win international rights uh, to residual. So all of this, in a way, would play out uh, to an extent in Twin Peaks. Uh, I'm not sure if it would have been quite as possible without the w- without the uh, results of the strike, but they had full ownership of the series, uh, Lynch Frost Productions. Uh, ABC distributed it, but it was really run by Lynch and Frost personally. Uh, I'm probably exaggerating somewhat the relationship that has to the strike. It may have more to do with Lynch's creative independence at this point, to be fair, but didn't hurt. So after the strike was over, ABC is looking for content. They call them back. It's now late summer. The The new season of television is about to begin. Shows have been delayed. And ABC is in third place among the networks. They need to make a bold move. And bringing David Lynch to television is a pretty bold move. Lynch and Frost, Frost uh, didn't write the pilot until the strike was already over. So during all that time, they'd been working on other things. And they were brought back to Twin Peaks because they were like, hey, remember that idea about the, the trees blowing in the wind and the, the dead girl? Uh, can you do something more with that? And so they did something more with that. They wrote their script and they were casting it by the fall. A lot of the parts that are in the pilot uh, that would play a big part on the show, especially the young women, they were added to the script after Lynch and Frost saw an actor they liked and wanted to include them uh, without casting them as a particular existing character. If you look at what 
you know, who those characters were, like Shelley and uh, Audrey, for example, were, I don't know if they were written entirely after they found the actresses, but certainly the parts were beefed up because they liked certain actresses and wanted to give them more to do. I think originally it was, Donna was really supposed to be the only kind of young female protagonist in this, and she was going to carry all of the teen drama, but then they had these other characters kind of starting to blossom alongside her. The setting was originally supposed to be South Dakota, but Frost advised against it. He said, it's too barren and sparse out there. Like, let's set this somewhere a little more lush. So they moved it to Washington State, where Lynch had grown up. He was born in Missoula, Montana, and he lived near Spokane for a while. Frost was also probably inspired by the rural New York time, where his family would spend uh, summers. Uh, sorry, rural New York ta- town, where he would spend time with his family uh, during the summers of growing up. And that's where Hazel, near where Hazel Drew was murdered. So it had that kind of lore. Plus, of course, all the gossip of what's going on around town, who's sleeping with who, who's cheating to who in a business deal, that type of thing, I think really found its way into Twin Peaks. They went scouting locations in the Pacific Northwest, and they found Snoqualmie, Washington, which remarkably is only a half hour from Seattle. I visited there last summer and was just amazed at how you're in downtown Seattle, you get in your car, and bam, within, you know, not long, you're in this sort of mystical other place of Twin Peaks. The pilot would be shot there as well as in North Bend, Fall City, and Everett, which is more of a suburb north of Seattle. So it's actually scattered a little bit geographically, but in a in a tight area, but there's a fair amount of diversity in that area, which I think contributes to the feeling on the show of like, is it a city? Is it a town? Of course, it's a, it's a town, but the sign on the uh, on the way into town says 51,201 people. And the reason for that is the producers told them that 5,201, 5, which is what they wanted to have, was way too small for viewers to sympathize with. They thought they wouldn't watch a show that was that rural. So they had to make like it had a big population, even though it clearly doesn't, which is kind of funny. And years later, uh, well... A few years later, they would write a book, a spin-off book, in which they would explain that actually the reason the sign says that is it's a typo. The actual population is 5,200.1 or something like that, something equally ridiculous. Now, they cast a lot of these parts up in Seattle, uh, more of the smaller parts where they knew they didn't want to fly in somebody from L.A. just to do that part. And one of the parts that they cast there was Laura Palmer, the dead girl. At this time, it's like, okay, well, who is she in this script? She's really just a body. The Laura that is a big deal in this episode is the one that everybody talks about. The face to that isn't that important necessarily, although, of course, Lynch, being a visual artist, was keen on finding an interesting face. So they looked through a bunch of headshots. They found this actress who'd only done uh, theater work at that time and I think one like sort of educational-type video. And they brought her in, and this is her story of the meeting. Her name was Cheryl Lee, and she would be cast as Laura Palmer. She talked about this years later in Wrapped in Plastic magazine, which is a uh, it was a fanzine published by John Thorne and Craig Miller that kind of kept the flame of Twin Peaks alive years after it was on the air. And so in her interview, she says, This is the only time this has ever happened to me, and it may be the only time it ever happens again. I went into the room with no knowledge of the character at all, with no script, with no scenes to read, nothing. I sat in a chair across from David and Mark and Johanna Ray. I was so nervous that I sat on my hands for the entire 45-minute meeting. I knew if I took them out that I would be shaking. David just talked to me about where I was from and what I did. We laughed, and he talked to me about the freezing cold water. 
I had no idea what the man himself would be like. I remember just being completely unsurprised when I saw him. He's a very nice-looking man. He doesn't look dark or evil or anything like that at all. He's a very, very kind, and he has a heart of gold. It was just wonderful to meet him. In terms of the show, it was so secretive that they really didn't tell us anything. He just talked to me about playing a dead girl, and could I stand the freezing cold water that I was going to have to be in? Finally, at the end, he said, so do you want to do this? And I said, yes, I'd love to do this. So he said, okay, let's do it. I remember time stopped at that moment, and I kept thinking, did I just get a job? I looked up, and all three were smiling at me, and I just kept smiling back at them. I couldn't figure out how to say, so um, did you just hire me? I couldn't figure it out, so I didn't really say anything. I just smiled and giggled. As I walked out of the room, the casting director said, don't tell anyone. I said, don't tell anyone what? And she said, don't tell anyone that you just got the job. I very calmly said, I won't. I walked out of the office, through the room with all the other people, and then I cried the whole way home. I was so poor I couldn't get a cab. I had to walk like 50 blocks home, and I was just in ecstasy, just crying out of gratefulness. And that's an anecdote I wanted to share, even though I'm not talking that much about the casting, just because I think the way, the sort of unpresuming way that she came into Twin Peaks is so interesting, because of course, Laura Palmer is so central to this story, as we see here. Now, that's not necessarily going to be the case all through the series, but for this moment, the way the show is starting off, I think bringing in that that strong presence, and, and Lynch and Frost were particularly, I think, struck by her presence in the home vi- the home movie sequence that they shot at the picnic that really made an impact on them and sort of made them think about Laura in a new light I think this pilot was shot in February through March of 1989 the only reason that February 24th has such significance is that uh, that's when they shot some of the scenes I think Kyle McLaughlin's monologue so they had him say February 24th 1989 and thus a, a, a important date was born Lynch shot it pretty fast, something like 18 or 28 days. 28 days sounds a little more realistic, but it was pretty fast for them. And uh, during that time, he was also accumulating ideas for an alternate ending that he was contractually obligated to shoot. There were a few presences on set, an extra and a set designer who accidentally wound up on camera that Lynch wanted to incorporate in some way or another. So he wrote this goofy little uh, scenario that they could use to close off the the open-ended pilot And the reason for that is they needed to sell it to foreign territories if it wasn't uh, accepted by ABC and commissioned as a series. They needed to do something with the pilot for some of the the funders so that they could make their money back. Uh, So in order to do that, they went out to this little island, probably off of Seattle. They found this old abandoned school, and they shot some scenes down there. And then months later, while he was editing the pilot in L.A., Uh, maybe weeks later, but certainly back in Los Angeles, Lynch took a break, a smoke break from the editing room, and he had an epiphany about another sequence out of nowhere. It just came to him as a whole image, and he decided to make that part of the alternate ending. It would become the most famous part and end up playing a huge role, actually, in the actual series itself. Lynch and Frost are pretty ambiguous about whether or not they thought the series would be picked up. At times, they say they were very confident it would, so they kind of brushed the alternate ending off as just a you know, an obligation they didn't have to take very seriously. But at other times they say, oh, we thought this was too far out to be a series. We didn't even know in some cases where we'd go with it because we just thought, oh, they'll never let us write a series for this. The pilot, we'll be lucky if the pilot even airs as a TV movie. And ABC, sure enough, sat on it for a while. They weren't sure what to do with this strange uh, thing that they had on their hands. Lynch Frost Productions, though, got a screening for the Directors Guild in the spring of 1989. 
and it went off like gangbusters. A lot of Hollywood's sort of elite came and saw it and were just blown away by it, calling it like not just a great TV experience, but a great movie. They couldn't wait to see it made into a TV show. It got a lot of buzz. So finally, ABC cautiously commissioned a very short first season, just seven additional episodes that they would air near the end of the 1989 to 90 season as like a replacement for some whatever other, I believe just any show that got kind of canceled or wasn't going to make it, they could slot this in in its place. So it just sort of was put on that third string and it wouldn't end up airing until April 8th, 1990. And that's it for the production context of the Twin Peaks pilot. Tomorrow we'll have an episode on the big question, the big mystery of this pilot, who killed Laura Palmer, the clues, the evidence it gives us, and try to organize that and think about uh, where we are at the end of this episode in terms of that. So tune in for that on Sunday. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing, particularly on Apple Podcasts. And uh, if you want to support my work, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash lost in the movies. <laughs>